you have your Bibles, uh, turn to that old familiar place. Your Bibles ought to be just falling open to that Romans 12 by now. Romans 13. This morning we'll be dealing with Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Loving your neighbor. uh, Before we begin, let's uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a joy it is to be in your word, to be in worship, to acknowledge you as the one true God. Lord, we thank you for the privilege and honor that we have. Gathering together with all the saints and all of the angelic creatures, coming before your throne, listening to your word. Open our hearts, O oh God. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom and understanding. Change us, O oh Lord that we might be more like Christ. We praise you and thank you in His name. Amen. We spent a number of months going through Romans and a number of weeks in Romans 12, particularly the first two verses. But I think it's really important always to understand the context. We tend to preach a sermon and we get locked in on the passage. So, you'll find that I continue to kind of bring to mind the context of what we're talking about. And the context of this passage is teaching that because Christ loved us, we have a debt of love toward God. Romans 12.1 says, We must present ourselves as bond slaves to God. Paul called himself a bond slave, a, a doulos in the Greek. We were talking in Sunday school this morning that uh, there were three kinds of slaves in Greek uh, culture. You could be a slave if you were captured in battle and you belong to the person that captured you. Um, you could also be a, uh, a son or daughter of a slave and, and be a slave by uh, hereditary uh, process. But if you were a person who owed a great debt and you were unable to pay that debt, you could sell yourself into service to the person to whom you owed the debt. You then became a a bond slave, a doulos. And Paul continually calls himself a doulos. We are bond slaves, willingly submitting ourselves to the service of God. We must present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice, Romans 12.1. We must not be conformed to the world, but we must be transformed into the image of God, Romans 12.2. Romans 12.3-8 teaches that we are the body of Christ and each and every member who is part of the body of Christ has been given gifts by God and those gifts are given to enable you and I to serve Him, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to enable us to discharge the debt of love that we have to God. Romans 12, 9-13 teaches that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Romans 12, 14-21 teaches us something that is very, very difficult. We are to love even our enemies as Christ loved us who were hostile toward Him and gave Himself up for us. Romans 13, 1-7 teaches that we are to honor those whom God has placed in authority over us. We're to behave toward them in a loving way. Not to be hostile. Not to be rebellious. 
but to behave toward them in a loving way. And Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, teaches us that we are to love our neighbor. Your only debt should be loved. We are commanded to owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Verse 8. We word studies, uh, which goes into the Greek and the definition, says the force of the Greek is stop owing to anyone, even one thing. The problem in the early church, as it is in the church today, is that people were in debt. They were owing other people. They were slaves to their debts. Alfred, in his commentary, says, pay all other debts. Be indebted in the matter of love alone. In other words, pay off all those financial debts. Be indebted only in the matter of love. Well, that brings up a question. What about borrowing? Should Christians buy a house, for instance? Should they buy a car? Well, the answer is yes. See, James Montgomery Boyce points out that the Bible does not forbid borrowing. Jesus assumed the right to borrow in Matthew 5.42 when he said, Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You see, the point of Romans 13.8, as Boyce talk, uh, says, is not that Christians should never borrow, but that they should never leave their debts unpaid. Leon Morris points out, being a present imperative, the verb even has a continuous force. Don't continue owing. Pay your debts. John Murray goes further. He says, this cannot be, cannot be taken to mean that we may never incur financial obligations. But it does condemn the looseness with which we contract debts and particularly the indifference so often displayed in the discharging of them. That's contrary to the world, folks. Most Americans are like the guy in the recent commercial. You see him riding around on his riding lawnmower and he says, I have a new house. I have a new car. I belong to the golf club. I have all these things. How do I do it? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. Somebody please help me. There's a lot of folks in the Christian church who are in that position. Even churches are not immune. I first went to the church in Bakersfield right out of seminary. They weren't paying me a whole lot. And I've only been there, I don't know, three or four weeks, and I get this call from one of the local merchants in town. And the church owed him a debt. And it hadn't been paid in months. And I went to the session and I said, What's going on, guys? How come we owe this money? They said, Oh, well, we we're paying the pastor's salary. I said, Wrong. We pay the rent. We pay the utilities. Because we have to do those. We pay all the bills that we've already gotten services for. Then we pay the pastor. And we do anything else that we want to do. At one point, I was $8,000 behind in salary. 
that God is gracious and God paid up. But you see, the point is that even the church was not paying its debt. In fact, the person that I talked to said, that's common among churches. They don't pay their bills. And I would submit to you, that's not a very good witness for Christ. I'd also venture to say that there are a lot of Christians who get so much in debt that they declare bankruptcy and they forget about all their debts. The Bible teaches something entirely different. Well, in our culture, the question comes up, how, is it, how in the world can we live without debt? Well, James Montgomery Boyce offers some practical ways to owe nothing to anyone. He says, first and foremost, we should stop buying on time with plastic or charge accounts. He says, buying a house is good if you can afford the payments and still meet your other obligations, tithe, savings, food, clothing, etc. Money Magazine in an article in 1988 says, if willpower alone cannot stop your borrowing. Try plastic surgery. Cut up your credit cards. Cancel your credit lines. Close your overdraft accounts. That seems hard. But the goal is to reduce your expenditures below your income. There are a lot of people in the world today, particularly in America, that are the other way around. Our consumer debt is phenomenal. Live within your means. Don't spend more than you bring in. Ron Blue, a Christian financial counselor, says spend less than you earn and do it for a long time and you will be financially successful. Blue relates a story. He says on one occasion a retired pastor came to him for some financial advice. He had never earned more than $8,000 in any one year. And he wanted to know if he'd have enough money to live out his life in retirement. At this point, the man was 80 years old and he'd been retired for 20 years. Blue began to ask about his finances. Did he have any debts? No. Why not? Because he knew he would have to repay them someday. And he wasn't earning enough money to pay off debts, feed his family, and give his tithe. Did he have any assets? Yes. He had $250,000 in cash and money market funds in his wife's name. And an additional $350,000 in his own name. A total of $600,000. Oh, and yes, he had invested $10,000 in a new company some years ago, and the value of the stock had by this time grown to $1,063,000. Total assets, $1,663,000, and he had never earned more than $8,000 a year. Lou sent him away with no advice at all, told him not to listen to anybody else either. He was doing just fine, thank you. How different was this pastor from most of the Christian world today?
sometimes pastors have to say hard things. This is one of those times. Even in Potomac Hills, there are some who are not being faithful to this family of God. The median family income in Loudoun County is $80,648 a year. If you look at how much people give at Potomac Hills, the average family income at Potomac Hills, based on what each person did, each family gives, is fifty-two thousand two hundred thirty-six dollars. The average giving at Potomac Hills per family is four hundred twenty-four dollars per month. Although there's no command in the New Testament to tithe, that's an excellent. I counsel people, I tell them, first thing you ought to do is look at your income and take 10% right off the top. Don't even consider that as income. Give it to God. Take another 10% and put it in savings. If you do that regularly, you'll be like that pastor at 80 years old with a million and a half dollars in assets. You won't have to worry about it, particularly for you young folks. When someone gives you money, 10% to God, 10% to savings. If you're a young person just starting out on a job, 10% to God, 10% to saving. By the time you're as old as I am, you'll be sitting pretty. If you're not giving to God out of the abundance of the you, you are stealing God. Some of you, and we wonder why God I can tell you story after story after story of people who were willing to fight the bull and give to God and God pulled out blessings far beyond anything they could ever have. I was a new Christian and I got married well, that's we met on July 4th, got married on September 5th of the same year, and I became a Christian. But when we got married, one of the things that Jan said was, I want to tie our income. I said, okay, that's fine. But I want to make sure where the money's going. I want to make sure it's spent well. Jan said, excuse me, but I don't remember the command in Scripture to say, find out how the money's spent. When we got married, I had several thousand dollars in debt. I quit my job a year later. Studied for a year in the seminary. We had very little income then. The first class of Coast Guard. The church in Bakersfield paid me $20,000 a year. The most they ever paid me was $24,000 in eight years. God has blessed us. I look at what God has done and I'm just amazed. And I want to encourage each one and every one of you to trust God this. Give to Him. Stop owing other people anything except the debt of love. We must owe nothing except that debt of love and that debt is owed to those who are in Christ. That debt to those who are in Christ is normally pretty easy to discharge. 
Those who are in Christ are a lot like us. They like the same things we like most of the time. They mostly agree with us. They speak the same language. They believe the same things we do. But that debt is also owed to those who are not in Christ. Verse 8 in the New American Standard says, For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Literally in the Greek, that verse says, He who loves the other has fulfilled the law. You see, what it's pointing out to us is that Christ loved the others. You and I. God is completely other. He is completely different than you and I. Unless God had revealed Himself to us, we could not even imagine what God is like. I defy anybody here to think of something that you've never been exposed to, either in word or someone talking to you or that you've seen. You simply cannot do it. It is impossible. And therefore, we could not have imagined who God is or what He's like unless He revealed Himself to us. We're made in His image. We're not like Him. He's completely other. And Christ gave up His glory in heaven. He came to earth and He lived the life that we couldn't live. And He died the death that you and I deserve so that we might live in heaven with Him. Therefore, we are loved together. Those who are not like us. Those who are different. Those who don't wear the same kind of clothes and speak the same kind of language. And and maybe they've got a a nose ring and purple hair and and ripped up shorts and, and chains. I don't know about you, but man, that turns me off big time. But God says reach out to those people as He reached out to us. And that debt of love can never be repaid. Romans 8.12 teaches us that we who are Christians are all under obligation to God to live a holy life because we have been adopted as sons of the Father. Origen, his writing, says the debt of charity the debt of love, is permanent. And we are never quit of it. For we must repay it daily and yet always owe it. Sort of like an interest only loan on a house. You pay it every month and the debt never goes down. We're never quit of that debt. We pay it day after day moment after moment because we've been saved to serve as bond slaves. And the scripture says that the debt of love fulfills the law. God gave the commandments to tell us what He's like and to tell us how far short of Him we've come. And to break the commandments is to take from others. The commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, There's uh, four of them, uh, four negative ones and one positive one here. You shall not commit adultery because adultery is taking from others. Do not steal your neighbor's wife. Do not steal your neighbor's family relationship. 
Do not steal your family relationship. Don't even look with lust upon your neighbor's wife because to do so is to commit adultery with her in your heart. Or your husband, husband, your husband. Don't look at pornography. For that is to commit adultery. Matthew 5.32 says unchastity or fornication is a cause for divorce. And the word that we translate fornication is porneia, from which we get pornography. The word for adultery also comes from a word which means apostate. It means to revolt. It means to turn away. Therefore, any sexual action or thought which brings separation into the relationship is forbidden. That's why God accuses Israel of adultery because they were turning away from Him as God. He was providing for them and they kept running after other husbands. They were stealing. You shall not murder. Do not steal your neighbor or anyone else's life. Do not be angry with your neighbor for that is to murder your neighbor, Jesus says, and to take his life from him. You shall not steal. You must not take anything that belongs to another. The word we translate steal is klepto. But we can get kleptomaniac. Someone who steals without even thinking about it. I remember when I was a kid in high school, we went into a local drugstore. A couple of my buddies were taking things off the counter and putting them in their pockets. And it was just amazing to me. Where else do people do that? You shall not bear false witness. You must not steal anyone's good name. You shall not covet. The word is a compound word which means to set the heart upon. It means to have a passion or a desire for something that belongs to another. To want to steal it. To have it for yourself. But to fulfill the law is to give to others rather than take from them. Verse 9 says, If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The word we translate summed up is a, is a compound word. It's a really interesting word. It's a word which means to repeat and, and a compound and a word which means to strike in the head. In other words, the idea is that all the commandments are repeatedly struck in the head in this one command. If you remember this command and do it, you will have done all the others. But the question arises in people's minds, as it did in the lawyer who confronted Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Do you remember the story? The lawyer asked the question of Jesus in Luke 10.29, wishing to justify himself, the scripture says. And Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I don't know how many sermons you've heard on that, but I want to impress upon you that the point of the parable is in verses 36 and 37. In Luke 10, verses 36 and 37, Jesus asked the lawyer, he's holding the story of this, this uh, person who was uh, beaten and left alongside the road, and the priest came along, um, and the Levite came along, and they went on the other side of the road. They didn't bother to even go and look and see how the person was. And the Samaritan, a mortal enemy of Israelites, went over, cared for the guy, took him to the local inn, paid for his care, and says, if there's any more need, I'll pay it when I get back. Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three 
the Levite, the priest, or the Samaritan. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy for him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. In other words, the point of the parable is not to ask, who is my neighbor? The point of the parable is to be a neighbor. If God puts a need before you, then fill that need. Don't worry about whether that person is going to be able to repay you. Don't worry about whether that person is like you or not. Don't even worry if that person is your enemy. Behave in a loving way toward even your enemies. James McCombie Boy says there's nothing about us that God does not know. He knows all our sins, all our faults, all our miserable failures as human beings. Yet here is the wonderful thing. God loves us anyway. And is working in us to make us different people. Since God has accepted us, we do not need to fear rejection by anyone. Why are you and I concerned about what someone in this life thinks of us? If we truly understand that the God of the universe has accepted us, no matter what we have done, likewise we should not fear others if we truly have love for one another. First John four eighteen through twenty one says, "Perfect love casts out fear." We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him that the one who loves God should love his brother also and his neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Wrong is a word which means worthless, depraved, bad, wicked, evil. Most of us would not consider doing something wicked or evil or bad to others, especially not to a neighbor. But if you're focused on doing good for yourself alone, despite what happens to others, you are working ill to others. If you look upon your neighbor's spouse with lust, you're working ill to your neighbor. If you're coveting, lusting after anything of your neighbor's, wishing you had that thing instead of your neighbor, you are working ill to your neighbor. If you are angry with your neighbor or your brother or sister in Christ, you are working ill to your neighbor. And that Love is the fulfillment of the law. John Murray says, If love is the fulfillment of the law, this means that no law is fulfilled apart from love. This must apply, therefore, to the law that governs our, governs our conduct in the state. It is a great fallacy to suppose that in the state we have simply the order of justice, but that in other spheres, particularly in the church, we have the order in other words, what Murray is saying is, why do you pay taxes? Why do you stop at stop signs? 
Why do you do those things which the state commands? Out of love for God. Because as Dave Dorse pointed out last week, Romans 13, 1-7 says there's no authority except from God. God puts them in place and therefore to obey them is to show God that you love Him. Verse 8. Loving our neighbor has fulfilled the law. The verb is in the Greek perfect something happened in the past has continuous results into the present. He that loves the other has fulfilled the law. In other words, if you love the other, you have fulfilled past tense, continuing results into the present. You fulfill the law. And I submit that you and I cannot do that. There was only one who did that. Only Christ can do that perfectly. But you and I are called to imitate Him, to reflect Him, to reflect His glory in the darkness of this world. As we cling to Him and what He has done, we fulfill the law. As you and I as the body of Christ try in our infinitesimally small way we fulfill the law because we are in the law. 